Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. <laughs> and Alex Lawson. He's live. He's live over We're there. We're here. We're hey here. Guys. We're all here. Yeah. There was such a long pause there. I was like, what's he about to do? Just want to make sure, you know. Is he getting a call? What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have a really interesting show this week. We talked to uh, Andrew Strickler, uh, our, old, our old buddy, Andrew Strickler, about... Uh, the acquittal of Greg Craig, who is the Scadden lawyer. For... Gregory, Gregory, Gregory. Yeah, Gregory, Gregory. He <laughs> yeah. was caught up in the Mueller probe, and he was uh, doing some lobbying for Ukraine. There was a really <laughs> in, uh, interesting trial that went on. We talked to him about that. But I was trying to remember. I watched a lot of SNL when I was a kid. Yeah, me um, too. And I remember, I was like, I, and I, I know Craig had been a prominent DC lawyer for a long time. And then I remembered that he came up during uh, the era of Weekend Update when Colin Quinn was hosting it. Oh, good memory. Then there's Clinton's new special counsel, Greg Craig. First of all, who the hell is named Greg Craig? <laughs> you can either be named Greg or Craig. You can't have both. You can't be Greg Craig. This is, this is, this is, this is 20 years ago, and, you know, and, and, and now we're talking about him today. I would, like to, I would like to get on the record that Colin Quinn, not good he was, at uh, it was a, it, it, Weekend it, Update. It was a low point for Weekend Update. I do like playing Colin Quinn, though, because it's such a distinctive accent. He a has. Park Slope accent. Yeah. Not the only, by the way, not the only 90s television connection to this case, by the way. Did you guys, I sent you guys the Paul Manafort on What Would You Do, right? Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, Paul Manafort yeah. was on, the, 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 it was a game show-ish variety show on Nickelodeon with his wife, uh, hosted by Mark Summers. Hosted by Mark Summers, and Mark yep. Summers had, had, had Paul Manafort's wallet as part of a bit, and they and there's like a million credit cards and all this stuff in it. And he's talking, he's he's giving Manafort the business, and then they cut to Manafort, a much younger Paul Manafort, and he's like in a flop sweat, yeah, he smiling looked, through. He looks you know, slippery at the time. There's yeah. a lot of times that uh, the internet is a, a force of of evil, but every now and then there's a gem like this that resurfaces yeah, that as part was, of the zeitgeist, and it's just fun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, lots to look forward well, to today. I'm glad you brought up uh, Paul Manafort because we're going to stay in the sort of Trump world for our yes. for our very yes. first news story. Uh, a judge ruled this week that that the the administration had to reinstate a member of the White House press corps who had been booted from the White House. Um, it's that that probably sounds familiar. Say we did this once before, didn't we? Times, um, but it's the second. <laughs> yes. You know, it's part of the bigger the 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 conflict between the White House and the media, and um, it's the second time in the last nine or ten months yeah, that, right. that, that the courts have jumped in. All right. You know they've 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 revoked press credentials in the past as we talked. What 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 happened this time around? So back in July, uh, the uh, the White House President Trump held this Rose Garden event for um, conservative internet personalities. Yeah, uh, love to host conservative internet personalities. And uh, when the event was over, there was this incident involving Brian Karam, who is the um, the White House correspondent for Playboy magazine. He's also on CNN every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a Sort of eccentric member of the White House press corps. He's known for being very outspoken. Um, he's a strong critic of the president. And so he, w- after this event was over, he was yelling these questions at the president, which isn't altogether an unusual thing for the... No. You know, yeah, the press corps away. shouts things all right. the time to try to get a last answer of things. But so the the uh, the gathered conservative internet personalities yeah. started sort of you know teasing him for doing this, and he joked back at them. He made a joke about how they were a crowd eager for demonic possession. I, I, I don't quite get the... But anyway, he, they were sort of joking back and forth. And um, right at that moment, one of the people who were there uh, w- was Sebastian Gorka, uh, who the name might sound familiar. Yeah. And he starts yelling at Karam, oh, and, and you're a journalist, right? 
And you're a journalist, right? That's right. Hey, come this on over here and talk to me, brother. We can go outside and have a long conversation. You are a punk. You're not a journalist. You're a punk. Go home. Journalist, go home. Hey, Gorka, get a job. <laughs> get a job is always a good insult. Yeah. Um, well, uh, well, Gorka had just. I mean, Gorka's a media guy. He's like a. He's got a radio show now, but he was a former White House advisor. Very, very briefly, a White yeah. House advisor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but so, uh, so you know, the, I think the the real crux here was that that you know the the saying we could go outside it was clearly a sort of a i mean whether or not it was a joke or whether it was a serious thing yeah i think he said we can go outside and have a conversation it's so it's it, it is a sort of a thing people say it's when they're looking it can, to it right, can be euphemism to fight yeah. someone mm-hmm. um yes. so a few weeks later press secretary stephanie grisham suspended karam's hard pass which is this like permanent yeah. pass that you know um you're that, a standing member of the press corps exactly mm-hmm. and um so saying that he had that he had uh, escalated this incident and he had acted unprofessionally and so it was this temporary suspension for 30 days from the middle of July to the middle of September so Karen went out and joined a club with Jim Acosta they they formed a club now. yeah 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 so uh yeah so Karen quickly filed a lawsuit and, and as Amber is alluding to it was sort of the same fact pattern as uh, a thing we saw near the end of last year in November and December um, the White House revoked the press pass of CNN reporter Jim Acosta following an incident uh, folks will probably remember that there was a controversy over whether, oh, whether yeah. or not the microphone whether like, or not the the video yeah, had been altered right but where based- Acosta was holding a microphone and then a um, a page or somebody came by to take it from his hand and it was a question of was there you know some pushing and pulling they had both did pulled what? on the microphone in some regard right. it was like yeah. the whole thing so yeah. um, Acosta had his press pass revoked for that incident yeah and um, he quickly sued and they they said that the 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 basic crux of the lawsuit was that the the White House reporters have a First Amendment interest in being in the White House. That yeah. There is this interest in, in being there. And that so that if you revoke that press pass, if you take that away for arbitrary or unfair reasons, you're violating the Fifth Amendment, the um, the right to, to due process. Due process. So you, you basically have to like earlier cases had said basically that thing that if the White House is going to. Uh, revoke a press pass. They need to have very clear rules beforehand about what you're not allowed to do and what you are allowed to do. And then they need to give you this process where you have a chance to respond and, and, and whatnot. I remember us talking about Acosta before, right? And he basically won. Yeah, Acosta won on that argument. The the A judge issued an injunction that forced the White House to reinstate his pass. The judge basically sided with the argument that I just said that um, – that the the ruling the decision to revoke Acosta's press pass had been uh, you know it hadn't been explained there hadn't been ground rules for why yeah. for why that would happen and they didn't give him enough chance to rebut uh, what what the White House had had done so that had violated his his right to due process under the Fifth Amendment um, after that ruling came out they the White House and Acosta quickly settled and he got his pass fully reinstated but. Um, uh, and then they came out with like some ground rules or something, right? There's like vague procedures for like decorum or something. Yeah, which is it sort of gets us it sort of gets us back into this current. Well, case yeah, I wanted where, to ask like so we the, the the reasoning on the Acosta case was pretty clear. Is this just like the same thing ported over? Or? Right. So I mean, well, I mean to a certain extent, yes, because it's brought by the same attorney, uh, Ted oh, Boutros, wow. who's a pretty famous First Amendment lawyer yeah. who works at Gibson Dunn, um, and and it it was pretty much the exact same arguments yeah. here. Um, but so in the 
to get back to what you said, in the aftermath of the Acosta case, the White House issued this letter about like what the ground rules are for decorum oh, right. and everything else at at White House press conferences, um, but at formal press conferences. Um, the idea was that oh, I see where the, this is going. <laughs> yeah. So the idea was that um, that the next time that someone raised yeah. an argument like this, it wouldn't be susceptible to this Fifth Amendment process yeah. claim because, you know, you know what the rules are. Here's this process for how we do it, and we'll we'll use those rules in the future. Sounds like they left a real opening for being out in the Rose Garden at an <laughs> informal gathering. Yeah. So, uh, so, yeah. So this Tuesday, we got a ruling in Karim's case that said that the decision to revoke his press pass had still violated the Fifth Amendment. Um, the, the, the letter that had been issued after the Acosta case... Uh, as I sort of uh, directly alluded to, it um, it only specified things in these these formal White House press conferences. Yeah, that's not what this was. Um, there was a catch-all sort of clause at the end of the letter where it said that you know that we expect professionalism, unprofessional behavior will not be tolerated. Yeah. We when may have here, to come up with yeah. more rules, but it didn't specifically say and. Um, what the judge said was that the the that this that those weren't clear enough ground rules to satisfy the the requirements, okay. particularly because you know it's such a, the, when you're talking about f- the First Amendment right of of the media to report on the president, it's it doesn't get much much loftier when it comes to a First Amendment uh, issue. Yeah, the quote from the ruling was quote. Though professionalism has a well known common meaning, it is inherently subjective and context dependent. Such abstract concepts may at times indicate what is allowed and disallowed at the furthest margins, but they do not clearly define what is forbidden or permitted in common practice within those margins. Yeah. So it's just, you know we mentioned it at the up top, but it's the it's it's the latest in this tug of war between the Trump White House and the media, and um, the latest case of a judge sort of telling the administration they've 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 stepped too far. The next thing I want to talk about keeps us in the realm of today's show, which just feels a lot about the Trump administration, about um, various high-profile things that have happened over the last Politically few charged Politically events. charged events. Politically charged stuff. Yes. So the one I want to talk about is um, relates to Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh being seated. So it, it might feel like it was a long time ago, but everybody remember back to the drama that surrounded his confirmation hearing. Say we're coming up on a year on that. I yeah. Think, right. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I think we, and I don't just mean we here in this studio. I mean, I think America writ large watched those heated congressional hearings over allegations that he had sexually assaulted a woman in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone was watching it. I remember us even talking about it on the show, being in New York City, and you could see people with their phones watching it on the subway. It was. Yeah. It was really so, um, so heated at that moment. And Americans of all stripes seem to take sides over how they felt about his nomination. Yeah. But we have one prominent person I want to talk about today that's in trouble for expressing exactly how he felt, and that's a Texas judge. Mm, okay. So w- unpack it for us. I mean, who who was he, and and sort of what? How did we? You know, what what happened? Yeah. So the judge's name is John Lipscomb. He's in Travis County, Texas, and what he did was to stage a silent protest of Kavanaugh's confirmation mm-hmm. by closing his courtroom. And he draped his court with um, some media outlets have called it funeral bunting. It was a (laughs) big black sheet right over the doors of his uh, courtroom. And so what's happened now and the reason we're talking about it in this moment is that he's received a public admonishment by the state judicial disciplinary authorities. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he took issue with the 
the the process and confirmation of Kavanaugh and like so you're saying he, he did he so he just straight up closed the court down in like a ceremonial fashion or what he, like tell us more about ceremonial fashion is right yeah well, that's it's basically yeah. exactly what he did so this judge ran as a Democrat and he shut down his courtroom on October eighth he notified the local defense bar that it, it would be closed he had his bailiff turn away attorneys that showed up that day mm-hmm. um, as part of the proceedings of this disciplinary um, stuff he um, admitted there were 107 matters on his docket for the day. 69 criminal defendants were supposed to appear before him that day. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also said that he was in his office and he put in a full day's work. He just didn't do um, any of the actual hearings. He just didn't have hearings, yeah. Um, and so he said that despite the closure, he fulfilled that day. Um, here's how this all came to light. A reporter heard about this, mm-hmm. posted a picture of sort of the draped doors with this big black sheet on Twitter. It got some media attention. Local outlets covered it. You can imagine that people were really... Uh, keen to hear about this. It was an interesting story of a judge going this far, and that made its way to um, this disciplinary board. So, I mean, people, like you say, it, it, it became public in that fashion. Did did people sort of actively sort of lodge complaints against him? Or, I mean, yeah, were, they, were they just taking issue with it on principle? Or? Yeah, so p- there were five separate ethics complaints over the protest, and there was a full investigation. Um, the Texas State Commission on Judicial Conduct wrote this. By closing his courtroom and draping its doors in black fabric in public protest of the confirmation of Justice Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court, Judge Lipscomb engaged in willful conduct that was clearly inconsistent with the proper performance of his judicial duties. It's so weird. It's 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 just so overtly political that that you know it's just not something you associate with the bench that much. Yeah. Well, um, I, I was thinking about this, and this is definitely rare. It's a rare that sure. this is part of why it's newsworthy, and we're talking about it. But like you, this is. This is one of the states where, where judges run for election, which yes. I which I know is not uncommon. It happens uh, a lot of places, but like I, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more because it's like the whole thing is like you're apolitical, we're we're the judiciary, but like if you run, like that's an inherent like you're inherently making take, taking a political stance and like making a case for how you feel about certain issues. I mean, you guys are getting right at the point of of, of this story, which is um, was this just a political protest or not? And the judge alleges that it really wasn't. I okay. mean, he makes sort of an argument. He says. During this investigation into his actions, he said the protest was motivated by what he saw as Kavanaugh's, quote, total disrespect for women who have suffered sexual assault and his blatant disrespect for the Senate Judiciary Committee, especially the female senators. And then the judge went on um, as part of these proceedings. He was quoted some more and said this. My feelings about this are anything but political. I strongly felt and continue to feel that the Supreme Court and our entire judiciary has been besmirched and that I had a personal obligation to show my disapproval. Yeah. It's, well, it's like anything nowadays where, you know, it what people consider political is is itself a political question. It is. So it's shifting it, um, all the time. Yeah. And I just think um, he just got a public admonishment. And so that's sort of the end of this tale. But I do think it's interesting for us to have brought up on the show because it just shows how fractured even the judicial branch is becoming. Mm-hmm. Former Skadden attorney and ex-White House counsel Gregory Craig was acquitted on charges that he lied about legal work that he did for the Ukrainian government on Wednesday. The trial was a vestige of the Mueller probe, and it was a thorny test case for the Justice Department's efforts to more strictly enforce foreign lobbying laws. Uh, Here to walk us through it is Law 360's senior legal ethics reporter Andrew Strickler, who covered the trial in Washington. 
Welcome back to the show, Andrew. Thanks for having me. I went through, I counted, uh, I, unless I'm mistaken, this is nine this is nine times for him. Do you have that, Amber? Oh, um, I didn't look up the stat before this, but that sounds right. Andrew's a returning champion yes. of the show. And it's for cases like this that are really complicated that I feel kind of dumb about. So we call <laughs> up Andrew and we say, hey, explain this thorny thing. And today's no different. Yeah. Um, to get us started, Andrew, can you just situate us back into this world of Greg Craig? Um, how did he get swept up in the Mueller probe? What, what happened to him? Well, Craig has uh, been around D.C. a very long time. He's a very well-known Democratic attorney. Uh, he had a lot of experience as a national security advisor for Madeleine Albright. He had a lot of high-profile clients um, uh, while working at uh, Williams & Connolly earlier in his career. He's best known for leading the legal team that defended Bill Clinton in the impeachment proceeding in 1998 and 1999. He was part of that administration, and he later worked in the Obama White House. Uh, yeah, um, he was a sort of a well-regarded, um, well-regarded, he was, he, was, he was well-known Democratic operative, Democratic lawyer. Um, but how did he end up here with us? I know that this, I, I referenced already, this case was like kind of an outgrowth of the Mueller probe. He was working at Skadden during the time this all bubbled up. What, 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 uh, how did we get there? Right. Well, you can put Craig on the list of people who wish they had never done business with Paul Manafort. Yeah. Uh, in 2010, Craig left the Obama White House, went to Skadden. In early 2012, he was contacted about this project in Ukraine, basically writing what you would call a rule of law report about a Ukrainian prosecution that had caused the government there, gotten them a lot of criticism, a lot of grief in Europe and in the United States, and Craig took it on. He took on this project. The firm wrote this report. Paul Manafort at the time was the political advisor and lobbyist for Viktor Yanukovych, who was the president of Ukraine yeah. at the time. Years later, when Manafort uh, became the Trump campaign chairman in 2016, Obviously, the Mueller probe began looking at Russian meddling. It was also doing, the investigation was also looking at Manafort's work in Ukraine, his lobbying, money laundering, et cetera, et cetera, which brought them to Craig and the Staten report. Yeah. Uh, is it is it accurate to to sort of describe the you know we, the the details of the Skadden report are, are germane here, even though they're a little bit dry? Is it fair to say it's like this was basically like a PR like kind of report that kind of is meant to bolster the, the the reputation of the judicial system in the Ukraine. Is that basically correct? Well, it's it's funny. It depends on who you ask. Certainly, Scadden <laughs> uh, stated purpose, and I think the the report itself supports this, was that the that their job was to do a very independent, hands off review of mm -hmm. the prosecution of a former head of state. The firm, Craig, and many others at Skadden interviewed the prosecutors, the judge, they interviewed Yanukovych, they interviewed the person who was prosecuted, Yulia Tymoshenko, um, and many other people, and they wrote a very um, dry, lengthy report about due process issues yeah. in that trial. Um, the issue with Manafort, though, was that, as people came to understand years later, that Manafort's intention with the report was to take it to the press take it to politicians and to use it to paint the prosecution 
as fair and basically yeah. help Yanukovych gain legitimacy, counter criticism about the prosecutor and gain legitimacy for his government. Okay, um, so the case, as I already kind of gestured at, the, the, the case against Craig centers around a law we've talked about before. We talked about it with Jimmy, you remember, um, uh, which is the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And the, that law, as we understand it, basically requires if you're doing if you are doing any work, any lobbying work for a foreign government, you have to tell the U.S. government, you have to register with the United States government and say, I'm doing this work. Um, now, how does that how does that general requirement figure into how Craig was eventually charged in connection with this scadden work? What, what, what did they, what did the government basically say that he did? Well, the FARA group came to Craig after this report was released in 2012 and said, essentially, we've seen you quoted in some newspaper articles talking about this report, including in the New York Times, that makes us think that there's a possibility that you're acting as essentially a press agent for Ukraine. Tell us about the project. What did you do? Who is paying for it? Mm-hmm. Craig and Scadden answered and had a back and forth with the FAR group uh, through that year that culminated in a face-to-face meeting at which Craig convinced the FAR group to uh, reverse a decision, an initial decision, that Skadden did have to register. Okay. Craig was charged with lying, basically carrying on a scheme to lie and cover up his involvement in sort of the PR aspects of this project. Okay. So that lays out um, what they've charged him with, but you were actually there in the courtroom for this trial to see how this all played out. Um, can you tell us how it was in the room? Um, what arguments did Craig make, and, and how did he get off the hook here? Well, it was interesting. In the government's case, obviously, um, it was complicated because you have this whole political sort of background. You have the uh, FARA statute itself, which he was initially charged with a violation, a sort of a criminal liability, a uh, lying to the government <laughs> violation under FARA. That charge got thrown out. So at trial, it was just a single charge. Did he or did he not lie and omit relevant facts to the FARA unit? But the government's case was very complicated, very uh, kind of document-heavy. It relied a lot on emails sent between Craig and Paul Manafort, mm-hmm. between Rick Gates and Craig. Uh, there was a London sort of crisis management PR executive on the stand who was also hired by the Manafort team talking about Craig's agreement to background reporters uh, and a bigger elaborate plan to use the report to influence politicians, including in the U.S. And, and how did um, so, you, Yeah, go ahead. Well, there was a lot there. There was a, a lot of moving parts to uh, the case. And frankly, listening to it, it was hard to know how this was all going to land with the jury. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I mean, because it was very complicated. I mean, to be fair, Andrew, you've done a great job laying this out just in this conversation, and I still find it thorny and hard to, to digest. And we've talked about this exact case and all of these allegations several times on Pro Se. Um, Alex and I have had a lot of conversations about FARA because that yeah. sometimes touches your beat of international trade. trade. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like even sophisticated people have a tricky time following this. And how did that ultimately play out with the jurors. Is that really what we saw happen here? Well, it was interesting. I mean, it was a very long trial. It was into its fourth week when the, the jury finally got the case. 
less than five hours to come back with an acquittal on the single charge. And from what we could gather from the, the jurors who did speak afterwards was that they were very focused on an element of the case, another complicated element of the case, which is essentially a statute of limitations issue in which they had to agree that Craig had you know, lied and omitted a relevant fact after a particular date. Um, oh gosh! I mean, and, like we were, yeah, <laughs> as though we weren't in the weeds enough that we were dealing with, like, oh, yeah. Oh, you have no idea, and 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 that date was sort of a very late date in this whole scheme. So the jury had heard days and days and days of testimony about all this back and forth between the firm and Farah and all of these people through 2013. But essentially, they were asked to come to a unanimous conclusion that some material lie had been given to the federal government at a very late stage in all of that. And the jurors who spoke to us said, we couldn't see it. You know, with that narrow little window, we couldn't find anything that warranted a guilty verdict. And therefore, not guilty. Well, let me ask you, Andrew, was the the Craig defense, like, how did they basically, was the defense like, no, like no lie was told, or was it like it doesn't fit within this box of what the statute considers a lie? I mean, can you tell us about like what they told the jury and how maybe the jury and how they got them to sort of stop short of, of a conviction? Well, that, that's a good question. I mean, uh, as you might expect, uh, Craig Craig had a very uh, good legal team. Yeah, sure. He, he, uh, he, and, it would and seem that he they, would know some good D.C. lawyers. Yeah, definitely. He, he does. He does. Uh, and they did an excellent job. Uh, I would say they argued uh, a sort of a 360-degree case. Uh, on one aspect, they were arguing that the report itself was done very independently to, uh, to sort of bolster Craig's claim that he never had any reason to lie to benefit yeah. uh, Ukraine, that he had sort of beaten off Manafort and the Ukrainian officials who were trying to influence the firm to write a report that was you know, better for them, essentially. Yeah, definitely. Um, And he also claimed, uh, speaking specifically to the false statement, he claimed that his answers to the FAR unit were literally, strictly, technically true, even if he hadn't volunteered information that the FAR unit hadn't asked for. Oh, geez. And and that's where, yeah, that's where it got really tricky because... The government's case, again, another layer of complication was that essentially the claim was he had omitted to tell them things that they, they wanted to know, they should have known. Yeah, definitely. But in testimony, and in, in the far unit had um, on the stand admitted they hadn't asked a lot of questions that, you know, knowing what they know now, they yeah. would have asked. Um, uh, and yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, Andrew, like, I, there's the, so they were clearly arguing a lot of different ways that he didn't do the thing they said. Um, I read this. Daniel Siegel wrote the story for us, and this has popped up in other coverage. Can I just ask you plainly: Is the reason that he was acquitted because this was just an extremely difficult story to tell to a jury of lay people? I, th- I think that's a big part of it. Um, you know, there there were a, a lot of moments in the trial and a lot of evidence. Uh, very strongly suggesting that, at the very least, Craig had dodged the truth, that he had kind of lawyered his way around <laughs> yeah. this far inquiry. 
Um, and yet, again, a very quick acquittal uh, and suggestions from the jury that they couldn't get through all of the paper, all the testimony, everything that was said to find something concrete mm-hmm. to put their finger on and say that was a lie. Okay. Well, you know, and I think we can again point to the, the government's case as being really about omissions as a point as as opposed to, oh, here's a black and white mm-hmm. lie that he told. Andrew, the last thing I want to get to with you is sort of a a bigger picture of this. I mean, I was led to believe um, because of the Mueller probe and and all the things going on in the news that it was important that I learn all about FARA and understand how this works and that there may be lots more people that would um, be accused of various FARA violations and that this was an important thing. Where does this leave that law? I mean, it seems really, really hard to prove that kind of stuff. Well, it is hard, and the, the Department of Justice has been very clear in the last year or two since the Mueller probe that they're going to be bringing a lot more FAR cases. Now, Craig was a difficult one yes. because, it, for a lot of reasons, it was a hard case. We're talking about things that happened years and years ago. Craig himself, obviously a very respected, uh, very good lawyer. Um, but I think the the kind of damage that was done to... Gadden's reputation, the high-profile nature of this case, I think if the Department of Justice wanted to make a point about FARA and about, you know, a, a stricter take on unregistered foreign lobbying, yeah. I think we can say they, they still made that point. Uh, you know, deterrence is, is obviously part of the reason they bring these cases and Craig is not walking away from this unscathed. He had to retire. You know, he ended his career. He had to leave Skadden over all of this. Um, and uh, you know, it was a hard, it was a hard, long-fought case, uh, and it generated a lot of bad headlines. So um, I, I don't think we should look at this as a, as a complete loss for the government in terms of the the far enforcement. All right, Andrew. Well, maybe the government should hire you because you did a good job of explaining that you did a better job of explaining this than their lawyers appear to have. Uh, We appreciate you coming on and uh, walking us through it. Appreciate it. Happy to be with you. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and uh, we're coming back to one of our classics, which is to talk about music lawsuits. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Returning returning to the well. Yeah. We're hitting on, we got we got Biggie in this. No, that's great. great. We got profanity. We got That is actually a warning some... for listeners. We do have a little bit of profanity in a couple of our clips yeah, here. Yeah, sensitive no, language. No, nothing too harsh, everybody, yeah. but just a warning in case. Uh, we got spoken word poetry. We got samples. We got samples of samples. Oh, I heard you like samples in your samples. It's good. So I put a sample of the sample in your sample. (laughs) All right, Bill, what song are we talking about? So you all may remember uh, Biggie's 1993 hit Party and Bullshit. Do I ever. uh, Which featured those words over and over and over again in the chorus. So that mm. line was actually a sample. Um, 
That is amazing to me that that line is a sample. Yeah. Continue. Uh, it was an unauthorized sample taken from a 1968 recording of, um, it's a spoken word artist named Abiodun Oyawale. Mm-hmm. And it's his poem, uh, When the Revolution Comes. When the revolution comes. When the revolution comes. When the revolution comes. But until then... You know, and I know, niggas will party and bullshit and party and bullshit and party and bullshit and party and bullshit. So Oyawale didn't like that at the time. Um, yeah, but he was, didn't. Yeah, he didn't much file. different context. So he probably yes. didn't like it for that reason. Exactly, and we'll get into that. But um, he didn't sue at the time back in the '90s. Uh, for one, the law in like the '80s and the '90s was a lot. Uh, less defined about sampling because, mm-hmm. and that's why you saw so much unauthorized sampling in the in the the earliest days of hip hop. Yeah, um, it has since changed. You really have to like they, they're very very strict about licensing now. But um, for another thing, it was it, it had a lot to do with Biggie passing away in 1997. He he famously died, and um, the, Oyewale said he didn't want to. Yeah, he didn't want to hassle his his widow or his his mom about about this yeah. this dispute. Um, yeah. So, but then in 2012, uh, British pop star Rita Ora released How We Do, uh, which then in turn sampled Biggie's track. They did license the sample from okay. from Biggie's heirs or from his record label. Yeah. Um, and it incorporated the original sample. Before we talk about more, I would just like to go on record and say that Piggies is clearly the best of this, and we've really fallen down a rabbit hole. It's immaterial to what we're talking about, but my goodness, I couldn't agree more. I was like, what is that? What is going on? It seemed like a montage in a film where people were driving in uh, (laughs) convertibles. It sounded like they were sampling that Black Eyed Peas song. Anyway, sorry. The last thing we need is another sample in this story. (laughs) So it's sort of of like an Inception series of samples going down into this. Right. Yeah, it's a nesting doll of samples. Yeah, exactly. But so uh, Oyawale sued in... In 2016, a few years after the Rita Ora song came out, um, claiming that, and this is important, claiming that it was particularly egregious because it had been such a different message that his that his song had been about you know criticizing people for doing yeah. this, and yeah. that Biggie and Rita Ora were celebrating it. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so what? Like, I don't even know where to go with this. One. Like, uh, so like the the the. The actual samples arise in different contexts, and we're then borrowing from a sample that you know he yeah, let, yeah, let yeah. it go and didn't sue. What is that? So we where, got where, where, where are we at? We here? got a ruling this week that said okay. that the use of the clips was fair use, which is you know it allows you to reuse and, and change earlier right. copyrighted works. It's sort of like a safety valve for copyright. Um, and the the it the what the court did this week was basically affirm an earlier ruling, but the earlier ruling had said like. Look, that argument you're making that you that you said like this is damaging to me because it's so different than what I wanted. They were like, that is ultimately why this is fair use. That this is so different. It's than transformed. What... Yeah, exactly. Oh, I mean, the key consideration in fair use is whether something has been tra- it's it's a transformative use of something, uh, some earlier work. Yeah, because that... you want to keep the creativity flowing. So if it transforms it, exactly. That's and the, so the deal. Biggie uh, turned this really dark political poem from the late 1960s into this completely different message about you know being exuberance and uh, yeah carefree existence or you know what what have you you know I'm just really glad we finally had a music segment where 
I didn't mind listening to those clips. No more meatloaf, guys. I will take Biggie songs on the show from now on. Noted Rita Ora fan, uh, Amber, <laughs> Amber hey, McKinney. I said Biggie. I did not say Rita yes. Ora. Before we get down another path of tracks that I don't want to listen to, let's end today's show. Thanks for being with me, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guest this week, Andrew Strickler, and contributing reporter, Abrico. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. Our show is available where all major podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, everywhere. We'd love it if you'd subscribe and also leave us a written review. That's what helps people find us. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've talked about today, check out our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week.